Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word and that it is truth and that you have sent your son to save sinners. We thank you that he is the good shepherd and that his word is his voice. So we pray that now as his word is proclaimed, that you would do your work in us by your spirit, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd. We would respond to his word, that we would trust its promises. We would be warned by its warnings, heed his commands, and be comforted by his comforts. And I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. And we'll be studying the whole passage today, all of Isaiah chapter 60. This passage starts with the following words. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So this whole sermon, this whole passage, you could say, uh, Isaiah 60, is essentially a summons. It's a summons sermon. And in in a sense, it's kind of like a summons of knighting. K-N-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, knighting. It's a summons to be knighted by the king. And you are being knighted for great deeds that have been done, honorable deeds, righteous deeds, perfect and royal deeds, service in in honor of the king. You are being knighted for these great deeds, but you are not being knighted for the deeds of your own doing. When somebody is knighted by the British monarch, they are being knighted by something that they have done. It's an honor and dignity that is being given to them. And nowadays, you're only going to get such a a knighting for something really honorable, like being a pop star. But this summonsing, this knighting that is being done to the people of God is being done by deeds, not that they have done, but deeds that their substitute has done. Deeds that someone else did in their place. And this is the Messiah. They're not being honored for something they have done. Isaiah chapter 6, earlier in the book, Isaiah stands before the Lord, essentially kind of as a representative of the people, and he sees the holiness of God, and he's struck by his own unholiness in light of God's. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. So we know that this honor, this arise, shine, that is being given to the people of God is not because of what they've done. In Isaiah 53, seven chapters back, We learn why they get knighted, why they get this honor. Their Messiah dies for their sins. He's crushed. He bears the wrath of God. He's punished for their sin so that they could be made right with God. They have now been given a new identity, a glorious one. And so the Lord is summoning these people, summoning the people of Zion. We've already learned in in Isaiah That the people of Zion, the citizens of Zion, are all those who trust in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. So you are Zion. You are the holy city. You are the temple of God. If you trust in her king, the Lord Jesus. You are officially given that title by the merits of another. And now he says... You are called to live according to that title. So that is our first point. The Lord summons Zion out of darkness 
from all the nations. Let's read this in the first three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your arising. One of the things that we see in Isaiah is that Zion was also in darkness. We already saw that in Isaiah 40. The people who walked in, it's a a passage, it's a Christmas passage. The people who walked in have seen a great light. Zion also, the people of God also is in in darkness in two two ways. First of all, their sin itself was darkness. The Lord compares sin with darkness or blindness in Scripture. You're in this darkness of, this moral darkness. You are in sin, blind in sin. But they're also in darkness, the darkness of the results of their sin. God calls this, this the punishment or the curse that's upon the world. He calls that darkness. They are specifically the people who are hearing this, are supposed to hear this. They're, they're heading to exile, which was a, a form of darkness or, exile or God's punishment. So even though the Lord was Zion's God, and they originally come from Zion, this city of Jerusalem, they could be described in the exact same way that the pagan world was. Darkness. Paul makes this point in the first couple of chapters of Romans. The law, having the law of God, having the Bible doesn't make you righteous. You have the light. It just shows that you are guilty. By having the law of God, by having God's commands, even by trying to keep them, that doesn't make you light. It shows that you are a sinner. He makes this case in, in Ephesians 2, so does, uh, Paul does, that like the rest of mankind, the Israelites, just like the rest of, of, of mankind, followed the prince of darkness and were slaves to the kingdom of darkness. And so the Lord, first of all, is summon, summoning Zion out of darkness. Come out of darkness. Whether you are Jewish or you are a Gentile, come out of darkness. And he said that this would happen in force when the light of the world would come to Zion. When the Messiah would come. What did Jesus say when he was on earth? I am the light of the world. So when the light came, that would be the signal that God was gathering true Zion out of darkness, out of the world. In what way was Jesus the light? There's two real ways that Jesus was the light. Two ways that the Bible talks about him being the light. First of all, he's the light in that he was pure. So when you have the law of God, when you read the law of God and you compare yourself to it, it exposes you as being darkness, right? It it shows your sin. You hold it up as a mirror and you're like, wow, I guess I'm not as holy as I thought. I, I actually have darkness. I have guilt and I have sin. But now hold Jesus up to the law of God. Light or dark? perfectly blinding light, which is how he's described in Revelation in the first few chapters. This blinding light of a man, perfect in purity, blinding light, no darkness in him. So in that way, he's light, but he's also light in terms of hope. This is how the Bible describes him as hope. Because the law of God is not just given to you to show, hey, look at how wicked you are. It is to expose how wicked you are. 
so that you might run to the light, so that you may run not to the law to save yourself by doing better, but run to the hope of Christ. You aren't worthy, but there is one who is. Your life is not worthy enough to stand before God and not be crushed, but there is one who is. He is light in terms of hope. The hope of sinners, light, the dawn at the end of a long night. And so the Lord summons Israel, summons Zion, summons his people out of darkness. Now, God would summon Israel out of Babylon. Remember, they go into Babylon in exile. That's part of the darkness. And he's going to summon them out of darkness, out of Babylon. Now, that's not the point of this passage. The fact that that historically happened, that after Israel went to exile in in Babylon, that they came back, that was evidence, that was proof, that's a sign that the real summoning out of darkness was actually going to happen. He would one day send his Messiah, the light of the world. And so if you were an Israelite in Babylon, and then this summonsing comes back, saying, come out of Babylon, go back to Israel, you would be like, oh, He kept his promise. That means he will send the Messiah one day. He hasn't forgotten about us. So it functions kind of as a living parable of what God would one day do. Now, God says very clearly that there is only one light. And that light does come to Israel. That light comes from Israel's God. The light of the world would come to Israel. Israel's hope and consolation we will sing today. Not that there's lots of gods. There is only one God. There's the God of all the world, all the universe. But the God of Israel is the only God of the whole world. He says, all nations are covered in darkness. Did you see that in the first couple of verses? That darkness covers the entire world. The only place that's not covered in darkness would be Zion. This means that the religions of the world do not contain light. They are not God communicating to us in a different name. They are not sources of truth. The God of Islam is not the same God as Christianity or of Hinduism or Buddhism, or the Aboriginal spirituality, or the Greek or Roman pantheons, not the Norse or Celtic gods. Those are not gods. Those are lies. Those are darkness. Isaiah here prophesies that the light, when the light of Israel comes, he will draw people out of darkness to join the true Zion. And he will draw the people of pagan nations to join true Zion. The true Zion is going to be made up of people pulled out of darkness from every nation and be added to the kingdom of God's Son. Paul picks up on this in Colossians 1 verse 12. Listen to this. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Look what Paul says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Paul's a Jew. The only way to be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and made part of Zion is by faith in Christ. And notice also in Colossians 1, which we just read there, he qualifies you. You don't qualify yourself. 
Your own qualifications are not enough to get you to Zion. Qualifications you inherited from your parents, not enough to get you into Zion. What didn't work for Paul? Working really hard to keep the law didn't work for Paul. There's only one man who has the qualifications to belong to Zion. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to belong to the family of God, the nation of God, the people of God, the household of God, the kingdom of heaven, your own qualifications will not do. You have to confess your own qualifications as worthy of hell and then receive the qualifications of Christ. He qualified you. You enter the kingdom of heaven by Christ's qualifications. He was cursed for our qualifications on the cross, and we are blessed by his qualifications. And so that means when the Messiah comes, he's going to summon people out of darkness, both Jews and Greeks, Nigerians, Dutch, Brazilians, Colombians, Germans, Scots, Irish, Kenyans, Cree, Guatemalans, Mexicans, Brits, Ojibwe, Ukrainians, even Italians, if they behave themselves. Sorry, Jordan. And he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son by giving us his qualifications and cursing Christ for ours. How wonderful is that? And so he says, arise, shine. And so for the unbelievers that are here, come out of darkness. Come out of darkness. What you think is light about yourself, you think you're qualified to be part of the... It's not. Don't pretend. Don't fool yourself. It's better to know now that that's not going to work when you stand before God. Your qualifications are flawed, filthy rags in God's sight. Renounce your qualifications and take Christ's. Run to Christ. Trade your identity for his identity. Renounce your citizenship in the kingdom of darkness and enjoy citizenship in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And for the believers, you once were darkness, but you are no longer darkness. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 is getting at the same point here. Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, Christian. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name, qualifications of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Dear Christians, you and I need to hear this frequently. You are no longer a citizen of darkness. You're no longer a stranger or an enemy to God. You must renounce that life. That's no longer your identity. That's the old you. Arise. Shine. You are no longer darkness. Christ died for your darkness, and you are now in the kingdom of light. Dear Christians, do not forget that that is the old you, and you now belong to Christ, and Christ is God's. Second thing I believe that Isaiah and the Lord want us to see from this text is this. The Lord builds and beautifies his city temple 
by giving new hearts to people of all nations. Isaiah 60, verse 4 to 9. Let's read that. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall come to you. A mul- um, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news and the praises of God. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Thus far God's word. Did you notice how the children of Zion are brought from all the nations? And they also come with new hearts. You see this in verse 5. They shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt new hearts that love the glory of God, that love the building of Zion. And some of those are Jewish children who trusted in the gospel and were scattered to exile to all the nations. Or some who didn't trust in the gospel, but later while in exile, trusted in the gospel and became part of true Zion. And some of those are not Jewish. And yet, did you notice, they're still called the children of Zion. They don't just come in terms of location from the nations. They come of the nations. We can see this in, in verse 7. It says, those who minister to Zion at the altar are Keter and Naboeth. And we also know that there's no room for non-Zionites to be servants of God. Verses 1 to 3 said that, that darkness covers the whole earth. There is no light other than the citizens of, of, of Zion. The other thing is that the precious things that are being added to the temple after Christ are people. Because the temple of the Messiah would be a living temple made of living stones. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. This isn't the first temple. The church isn't the first temple. Solomon built a temple, you remember, right? And then after that, the temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt after the Israelites um, went back from exile. If you remember our our walk through um, Samuel and, and the historical books, where did David get a lot of the wood for the temple. Now, he didn't build it, right? He was collecting it, and then Solomon was... Where did he get it? His good friend, Hiram, king of Tyre. So why would the Israelites have loved the Tyrians? Why? What are they good for in building the temple? What do they bring? Wood. That's why we like the Tyrians for temple building. They're good at bringing wood. Okay? Now, Tarshish would have been valuable for its ships. Did you see Tarshish? Tarshish would have been valuable for its ships because they can bring things from all kinds of foreign nations, far off lands. 
What would they have been happy about from Keter and Naboth? What are they happy? Why are they good for temple building? Keter and Naboth. It's in the, it's in the text. What, what do you want Keter and Naboth around for? If you're, if you're going to have a temple. Flocks. You want flocks, right? Because sheep need to be sacrificed at the altar of that temple. Midian and Ephah and Sheba are valuable for building the temple for the people because they've got gold and frankincense. Oh, yeah. So when, the, when they considered the wealth of the nations to build the temple, they would have known what that was. Oh, yeah, that's the wealth of this nation, but not any longer. When the Messiah comes, the wealth of the nations to build up the temple is the actual people. The children of Zion come from the nations. Those are precious and living stones. True wealth from the nations. And there were two major signs that God did in history to prove that he would one day do this. The first one was when the temple was rebuilt after exile. It was rebuilt with foreign wealth. Did you know that? It was built with treasure from other nations. The king said, make sure this temple gets built. Not the king of Israel, the king of Babylon. Make sure this temple gets, gets built and make sure that they have every, all the resources they need to build it. So that was the first sign that God would do this through his, his Messiah, that his Messiah would one day have a temple made of living stones from all nations. That was the first sign, proof that that promise would take place. There's a second historical sign that God did to prove and actually identify who was the Messiah who would build a temple of all nations using living stones. Now, the kids, I hope you're paying attention here, okay? Because a few hundred years after Isaiah, God sent the Messiah. His name is Jesus, right? Okay? He sent the Messiah, Jesus. And then he put a star in the sky, and he summoned very important men from the east, far away. And they came. Maybe there was three of them. We don't know. But they came from far away. And they came and the star brought them to Bethlehem to a family. A little family. Two, two parents and a child. The child's name is Jesus. The mom's name is? The dad's name is? What gifts did they bring? What gifts did they bring this guy? This newborn Messiah. Jesus. Gold, what else? Myrrh and? Do you see any of those in our text in Isaiah chapter 60? Oh yeah, they're there. This is a sign that the Messiah had come. Coming from far off, they're bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. Surprise, this is an Advent sermon. What is the implication of this? That means a converted man or a converted woman is a treasure. And we ought to treat them that way. More valuable than gold. More miraculous than moving a mountain or giving sight to a blind person. What was valuable about Tyrians is that they brought wood. That's why Israel would have been happy to have them around when the first temple was built. But what's more valuable is a person redeemed from darkness and brought into light, no matter their background. What makes them belong in the church and precious is a heart which trusts the gospel and which can help us do the same. I wonder if you find this precious. 
Do you find the most valuable thing about a church member is their love for Christ? And do you practice this? The apostle, or, um, James, calls us to question this about ourselves. What draws you to another church member? Is it their age? Maybe shared interests? Their popularity? Their wealth? Their success? The favors they can do for you? Maybe you have a similar culture. But here is the point. You have a kinship, an affection, and a desire for people who belong to Christ. They, not Fox, not MSNBC, not Elon Musk, not the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, not the Libertarians, not the Conservative Party, not the Liberal Party, not the NDP, but those who have the Spirit of Christ, who trust in the gospel, those who are children of God by faith in Christ, these are your people. And you value what they bring to the table. And what is it that they bring to the table? Christ. They can help you trust in Christ. They can turn your eyes to Christ. They bring the gospel. That is what you value the most. More than fine gold or fine wood or meat or perfume. Are the people of God precious to you simply because they have faith in Christ? Because they are precious to Christ. And notice here, it's not because they were beautiful that God brought them in. He says in, in our text here, is he has made them beautiful. How has he made these living stones beautiful? Two, two main ways. One, he's given them his record, right? They're covered in his righteousness, his beauty. And then secondly, bit by bit, after they're converted, after they're saved, Bit by bit, he changes them into his likeness. And so we're not to see people as valuable as we think they are, but see them as actually having the merits and righteousness of Christ. And this is why the way we treat Christians is indicative of how precious we treat Christ. Because to be a Christian is to have the record and righteousness and identity of Christ. Which is why when Paul, the apostle, before he was an apostle, persecuted the church. Christ confronted him and said, why do you persecute me? Even though he was persecuting the church. The third point we should see from this passage is the gospel is of Christ's punishment instead of sinners will gather the nations to Zion. How are the people drawn out of darkness into light? Is it by telling them they're in darkness? Is it by them getting fed up with darkness? Well, we'll see. Let's look at 10 and 11. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you. But in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night, they shall not be shut. That the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with the kings led in procession. We're looking for the word for here, okay? How is it? that the people are going to be brought in, the wealth of the nations, right? Living stones. What's going to bring them in? We're looking for the word for. Can we find it? For in my wrath I struck you, in my favor I have had mercy on you. Dear friends, it is the gospel of God's wrath against sinners being satisfied by Christ. That is the gospel. It's not simply by telling people that they're sinners. 
It's not simply with the people getting fed up with progressivism or people getting fed up with extreme militant Islam because they just run from one to the other. They get fed up with one. It is not that. It is the gospel. You were an enemy of God. And Christ took your eneminess on the cross to reconcile you to God. That's what draws people to Christ. That's what gathers them in from the nations. Not you can have a better life if you join the church. Not you can have a better marriage or more health or more wealth. You have a more positive way of looking at things. No. You were an enemy. Do you want to be a child of God? This is what Christ offers. Turning God's wrath into everlasting, infinite, loving affection. So dear church, the power of God unto salvation is the gospel. It's not enough that people get fed up with the world or think that the way the world is going is crazy. It's true, but it is the gospel. It is effective. The gospel will call every single person who Christ died for on the cross, with no exception. Every single person who Christ died for on the cross, without exception, sharing the gospel with them will ultimately be effective. It will call them out of darkness. It will summon them into light. God will create faith in them with that gospel without exception. So let us be bold and confident and joyfully share the gospel with everyone, not wondering if they'd be the kind of person who would convert. Because the only kind of people that are there to convert are wicked enemies, just like you and I were. While God, while we were enemies, Christ died for us to bring us to God. Fourth point is this. Former enemies will come humbly and joyfully to Zion. Because there's a posture, there's, a, there's a, a, a way in which these living stones come together, assemble. Let's see this in verses 12 to 16. For the nation that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. For a joy from age to age, you shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus far, God's word. There's a posture, a way that these living stones assemble. They assemble joyfully and humbly. Did you notice at the first part there? For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those that do not serve you shall perish. Those nations will be utterly laid waste. What's the point? There's a humility in recognizing that you were estranged from God. It's the only way to join Zion is to recognize I am naturally estranged from God. For, for Paul, the apostle, this was a very big deal because he was Jewish and he had to recognize, no, I am an enemy of God. There's a humility that says, I'm naturally an enemy of God, no matter what nation I come from. 
And he comes in humility. Paul had to come to a Christian. A really insignificant Christian. And he had to go to Ananias. One of the men who he persecuted. He hated. And he had to come hat in hand. Tail between his legs. To come to him. And ask him to pray for him. And this is how the enemy of the church became part of the kingdom of God. He had to recognize, he had to recognize that he was an enemy and only Christ could make him a child of God, make him a citizen of Zion. And look what the Lord says to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name And so Paul is coming as a conquered enemy, one of the captives that God has led in in parade. And he's come as a, a conquered enemy to gladly serve the people of Zion, to gladly serve the citizens of Zion, the church. This is this humility. Whenever somebody is converted, when it was whether it was me or you, you come with humility. A former enemy now made a child and now a glad servant of Zion. I'm here to serve Zion and her king. And this means that we humbly confess that your family's gods are false. Your country's gods are false. There's no, I'm Caucasian, so I worship the Celtic or Norse gods. No. Or maybe your version of Christianity is determined by your culture or family roots, whether that be Dutch or Filipino or Mexican or Nigerian or German or Italian or African American. You know, I've got to be Catholic or I have to be charismatic. I've got to be liberal. I've got to be Arminian. I've got to be progressive. I have to have liberation theology or prosperity gospel because, you know, that's, that, that's where I come from. That's my family. No, we don't come to the Dutch God or the Filipino God or the Italian God or the Kenyan God. No, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. So we come humbly. Whatever his word says, we obey. The promises he gives, we trust. The things he says are wicked, we recognize as wicked. The things he says are beautiful, we recognize as beautiful. We trust his command, we trust his promises, and we keep his commands. And we do so joyfully. Because we realize that it is better to be in the household of Zion's God than in in the the household of the Dutch God. Because there is no Dutch God. There's just the God of Israel who reigns over the entire earth. The fifth is that peace and righteousness will captivate Zion's citizens. We see this in 17 and 18 quickly. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall be no more heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So they have taskmasters. They have slave masters. And what are these things? They're not people. They are peace and righteousness. So what this means is that we will obey not against our wills, but that we will delight our hearts are compelled 
New hearts that love and desire righteousness. Obeying God and living at peace with God and living at peace with all people. This is the mark of a Christian. It's not how you become a Christian is by giving yourself a new heart. No, you, are, you receive this promise, this gift of becoming a Christian, of being Zion by faith in Christ. But he does give you a new heart, a new heart that loves righteousness, loves peace with God, loves peace with people so far as it depends on you. That doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with loving righteousness and then also having a, a love of sin. The old you still remains and it has to be put to death. But the mark of a, a new citizen of Zion is that they, this is my law. And when they see that they are disobeying it, they will repent. Yes, no, I, that's who I used to be. I am a citizen of Zion and to live at peace. So it's a question that this text is asking us. Are you somebody who loves righteousness? And when you sin, can you be brought to repentance? And do you love peace with God? And do you strive to live at peace with all people? Are you hard to annoy? Are you the person at work that is the hardest to frustrate and bother? Or are you the easiest? Are you the person at home who is so hard to annoy? Or are you the person who's the easiest to annoy? This is the This is the new life that the Holy Spirit works in the citizens of Zion. But it's not by outward compulsion, right? It's not like people who love righteousness shall be your taskmasters. No, no, no. Peace and righteousness themselves shall be your taskmasters. It means it's internal compulsion. I will follow God because he is my God. Our last point is this. And it's about the surety that comes to Zion. Since since science righteousness comes from God alone, it is sure. We can see this in 19 to 22. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall, be, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may, might be glorified. The least of these shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. Our hope, Zion's hope, is not in our strength. Okay? But there's a version of this that is also false. No, no, our hope isn't in our strength. It's in God's strength, and God will give us his strength so long as we are good enough. No, 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 no. The security of Zion, of the church, the people of God, the family of God, the nation of God, the temple of God, is in Christ's righteousness. It's something that he planted, and he says it's the work of his hands. He plants the church. He builds the church, and it's based on Christ's righteousness, not her own. And this means that the church never has the sun go down on her. Now, do Christians still have a sun? Like right now, non-Christians need the sun. Christians, no, no, of course there's a sun and we, we, we have a sun still. So what does it mean here? What does it mean here? It means that our joy and hope are not dependent on our circumstance. It's solid, it's steady, because it's built on Christ's righteousness. 
Our joy and hope are not dependent on our circumstance, whether the sun's up or the sun's down. No matter what the sun is doing, night or day, summer, winter, health or sickness, poverty or prosperity, freedom or prison, public shame or apathy or affection, our hope and joy is steadfast, dear Christian. It depends on Christ, and that sun's always up. I am Christ's, and Christ is God. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, I'm comforted when the sun comes up. No. Your only comfort in life and death is that you are not your own, but you belong in body and soul to your faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true at night. This is true at, in the day. This is true when your coworkers hate you. This is true when you have cancer. This is true when you, are, you win the Mr. Universe Award, if they still do that. This is true if you're wealthy. This is true if you are poor. This is true if your spouse loves you. This is true if your spouse hates you. This is true if you're too sick to come to church today. The sun never goes down because Christ is your son. Your standing with God is stable because it's built on what Christ has done, not what you have done. So right now, the sun never goes down on Christians. But there will be a day when your circumstance will be perfectly fitted with Christ. Right now, we enjoy this treasure in jars of clay. But one day, the new heavens and earth, our circumstance will match the status of Christ. We will have lives that fit how wonderful Christ is. We'll fully enjoy the inheritance that Christ deserves. And the sun will never go down. Let these words summon you, church. The light of the world has come. Christ has come to die for sinners and, and to reconcile us to God. And so we stand by his record. We belong to his temple, to his city, to his church. So we to live in that reality. Turn from a life of darkness that was the old you. Love and delight in the living stones of the church. Love and treasure the citizens of Christ. Love them for what they bring is most precious to you. More precious than gold. They bring Christ. They bring the gospel. Embrace a life that is captivated by righteousness and peace. Not to become citizens of Zion, but because Christ qualified you as citizens. The church is called, it is summoned to celebrate Lord's Supper. To celebrate it as churches. Where Christ makes, or God makes a visible promise to all who believe in Christ. That his life was given in exchange for yours. That his body hung on the cross, so yours did not. His blood was spilled to pay for your sins. And the church is summoned to celebrate this. Not as individuals, but to celebrate this as churches. And so if you are a member of this church, or if you're a member of another church that preaches the same gospel, and your faith is in the Lord Jesus, we urge you to take the bread, take the cup. And these are God's promises made visible. And by this, you confess, you believe the oaths that God has sworn. 
that for all those who have faith in Christ, he was crushed for your iniquities and he was raised from the dead to reconcile you to God. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you that you have qualified us to be your citizens of Zion, to be living stones in your temple, to be part of this eternal dwelling. And Lord, we pray that as we celebrate Lord's Supper or communion, that you would remind us again of those promises. Remind us that we have been bought with a price, that we have been washed by his blood, and that we are now citizens of New Jerusalem, and that we wait We wait for Christ's return to celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb. Not that we have qualified for that, but that we have been qualified by Christ. So I pray that as as we celebrate this, Lord, I pray that um, that you would strengthen our faith, increase our confidence in Christ, and would you help us to wait for him until he returns. I pray this in Jesus' name.